Well, friends, our sermon series throughout the post-Easter, pre-Pentecost time has been one looking at people in Scripture who have difficulties in their lives. People who are undergoing trials, tribulations. We call it the Under Pressure Series. Now, years ago, I made a promise to myself that no matter what I was doing, how excited I was about a sermon series, that I would stop and speak about moms on Mother's Day. Well, you know, that's just, that's just a smart thing to do, you know, because I live with a lady who is a mom, a wonderful mom, and, and I know the importance of these people. I'll do the same thing come Father's Day because I think parenting for believers is such a key part of the ministry that God gives you in your life. But today we're able to do both together because in Scripture we see mothers who face difficulties, who face problems, and we have them in Scripture that we may learn from them, be built up by their stories. And one of those ladies is very familiar to us. Uh, she has a beautiful name that we name uh, our children after these days. I have a niece with this name, and uh, it's the story of uh, just touching briefly on the story of Hannah. And we're going to get to her story in a little while, but if you have your Bible with you here or at home, I'd encourage you to open it up to the first chapter of the book of First Samuel. First Samuel chapter 1, and that is uh, where we're going to find Hannah's story today. But before we do, I just want to briefly put this story and the importance of it that we often overlook into its historical context. Now, the context is found briefly put in uh, the very last verse of the book of Judges. Judges chapter 21, verse 25, reads as following from the English Standard Version rather than the NIV. It reads, in those days, at the end of the time of the Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The NIV translates it, everyone did as they saw fit. And that's a good translation too, because the literal translation is what was right in their own eyes. Now that doesn't sound too bad. They had no king. They all were trying to do right as best they saw it. But you read the book of Judges and you realize that this is a disaster It's a low point in the history of the people of Israel. In fact, the people of God, Israel, as a nation made up of 12 tribes, is teetering on the edge of disaster. They're almost facing extinction, dissolving from a unified people, worshiping the one true God, into a group of pagan, warring tribes. I'm not going to turn to it because as you read the last three chapters of the book of Judges, it's a horrible story. What happens there is grotesque. It's a parallel account to what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, but this isn't pagan cities destroyed by God. These are the people of God who are told to go in and occupy the land and have God as their king, and they're doing everything but. In the book of Judges, you see a cycle repeated again and again. The people, rather than walking with God, they turn to their own ways, doing what's right in their own eyes. They turn their back on God and their promises to be His people as He's their God. 
And then God, to bring them back to faith, sends punishment in the form of oppressors, foreign invaders, and so forth. The people, they do this again and again. They repent, they're restored, they turn away, they're punished, they repent, they're restored. And throughout this terrible cycle that isn't the people maintaining their spirituality, every time they come back, the bars set a little bit lower. They get worse and worse and worse and worse. And throughout that, God sends people uh, known as judges to sit in judgment of them and, and to, to uh, mediate their disputes and to be almost prophetic in sharing God's word and keep pointing the people back to God. Some of those judges, their names are amazing. People like Gideon and Samson and, and Deborah. And God uses them. But the spiritual state of the people gets worse and worse and worse until in the end, those last three chapters of Judges, you see a story of, you see a story of rape and murder, dismemberment, warfare. One of the tribes is exterminated. 25,000 men of the tribe of Benjamin are killed on one day. And the women are wiped out. Until finally, there's no more 12 tribes. There's only 11 with a few survivors. And so they have, they have kidnapping and all sorts of things to try to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin. It's horrible. And it's all summed up with that verse. In those days, there was no king. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And what's right in the eyes of sinful people is not good. It's not God's way. It's man's way. So this is the point. They're teetering on the edge. What can save these people? What can put them on the path back to becoming the people that God desires them to be? What hope is there for them? Judges, the book of Judges ends with very little hope. We have a little interlude, a story set about the same time, the wonderful heartwarming book of Ruth. But really, you could move Ruth someplace else. The Bible, I don't think the, the order of Scripture is, is inspired. This was just put together at councils and so forth. You move the book of Ruth someplace else and you see what really happens. This verse is followed by 1 Samuel chapter 1. We see the problem. And then 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see God's solution to the problem of the people. What will set their feet back on the right track? What will bring them back to God? And what it is, is a mother's prayer. A mother's prayer. Who knew that this woman's prayer would have such enormous repercussions for the people of God? They were at their lowest point Oh, they struggle many times with rebellion from, from the wilderness wanderings to, to the wicked kings of later years. But this point, they're on the edge of dissolving, not being a people or a country. And God uses the prayer of a brokenhearted woman. Though I call it a mother's prayer, the reality, we know the story of Hannah, the reality is she wasn't a mother. She had the heart of a mother, a, the desire to be a mother, but it had not been God's plan for her. She was not able to have children. And in a broken-hearted state, she turns to God. 
Well, this is what brings us to the story today, how God uses the prayer of a woman who desires above all things to have a child to save an entire nation. I call the first point I want to make as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 1, and it has a special meaning. I call it grace under pressure. Grace under pressure. Why do I say that? Well, I think Hannah does display enormous grace and patience. She's long-suffering. She's a powerful and unique example to us from Scripture. She's an amazing woman. But the wonderful thing is, Hannah, her Hebrew name, means grace. This is the name grace. She's not only a gracious woman, but her name is appropriate. She's grace herself. And she is under pressure. And this is something moms today understand, especially moms during the pandemic, especially working moms during the pandemic. Life has changed in the West for moms enormously in my lifetime. We've gone from most moms uh, working in the home, raising the family, keeping the household running smoothly, to most moms working outside the home, not in the place of working in the home, but in addition to all the work they seek to do at home. They feel stretched too far. It's so difficult. They're under pressure too. Let's turn our attention now to 1 Samuel chapter 1, grace under pressure, remembering that that's what Hannah's name is. Now, it's part of an interesting family. All of them have names that have similar Hebrew endings. Let's look at that. The first two verses of 1 Samuel, God's answer to the dire state of the people of Israel. And we find it in a little household in the tribe of Ephraim. It says there was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. That's why he's a Zufite. Now, this doesn't mean anything to you and I, except there's some comical names there. But the reality is, you tie this verse into First Chronicles, and you see the Zufites, the son of Zuf, these men were Levites. He's called an Ephraimite, but that's because he lives in the tribe of Ephraim. Remember, the Levites were a tribe that had no land of their own, and they lived in villages and cities that were portioned out to them in all of the other tribes who had territory. And they were meant to go, as part of every year, go to Shiloh, the tabernacle, later the temple in Jerusalem, and serve God as priests, Levites, in temple service. Elkanah was in this family. He's a Zuphite. He's one of these men. So keep this in mind. This is what they do, because we'll see it in the story. Verse 2, he had two wives. Now, that should get your attention right away because, because polygamy, while we see God makes allowance for it in the ancient times, God is very clear that this is never his desire for marriage. One man, one woman. That's what Jesus said. God never meant it to be that way, Jesus says. In the beginning, God had Adam and Eve, one man, one woman. And when we see this in this culture, it's often for a reason And we're told the reason right away that he has two wives. One was called Hannah, 
and the other, Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Now that's likely the reason that Elkanah took a second wife, is because his first wife was unable to bear children. Now, as you read the Hebrew structure of the grammar, it seems that Hannah was the priority wife. She was the first wife, the wife that uh, her children naturally would inherit the bulk of any family estate. They were the firstborn. They They were the children that would receive that. And yet, having no children, very likely this man took a second wife, and she had many children. Now, right away, you look at the story of Hannah and you begin to understand the difficulty that she would be having. She desired, above all things, to provide children for Elkanah to carry on the family, but unable to do so, he's taken drastic measures and brought a second wife into the family. As we see throughout the stories of the patriarchs and so forth, polygamy, uh, divided loyalties in families, favoritism, it's a recipe for disaster. Well, this is what we see right away. Hannah, grace, she has no children of her own. Now, in this culture, not having children was a disaster for a woman. In many ways, it was the center of their lives. They were, they, it wasn't like they were diminished and told, this is all you're for. But remember, in the ancient world, your children and your grandchildren, they were so important because as you got older, they, your family, is your social safety net. There was no government assistance. There was no welfare. If they did not take care of you, you would be a beggar at the side of the road, outcast, shamed, and forgotten. So it would be crushing for Hannah not to provide children for her husband. On top of that, they viewed children as an enormous blessing from God. So she would feel that she was missing God's blessing in her life. For instance, a picture of the blessed life is found for us in Psalm 128, beginning in verse 1. Blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in His ways. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your sons will be like olive shoots around your table. Thus is the man blessed who fears the Lord. You see that? A wife of blessing is a fertile wife, providing many children, and not just children, many sons. This is what women saw as the blessed life. And this was a life that was denied to Hannah. Now that in and of itself would be hard enough for her to bear in that society. But the other woman in the house, Panina, she did everything she could to make Hannah's situation worse, even unbearable. For Samuel 1, verses 3 to 8 read, Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Now, it's not spelled out clearly, but that's probably him going up as a Levite to do his duty, to fill his part of the role and to take his turn. And as he did that, he brought his family with him. And there was uh, ceremonies, fellowship meals, 
sacrifice and so forth. And it says, continuing in verse 4, whenever the day for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife, Panina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, the rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? <laughs> I think this is one of the more comical verses in the Bible, if you, if, you, if you know what I mean. Any of you who are married, can you imagine asking your wife that question? In that situation, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I really want, would love to hear her answer that. Her answer, by the way, is not included there. You know, men do say silly things sometimes, not knowing the, the depths of pain or anxiety or the things that our wives are going through. This time of year, you hear one of the crazier things any men have ever uttered in any language when it comes to Mother's Day and buying gifts or flowers, so forth, for their wives. They say, you're not my mom. Why should I buy you anything? You're not my mom. I pray for those men that God would just give them, give them wisdom and healing from the injuries that they incur after they say things like that. So, But here we have Elkanah. He loved her. It seems almost to be the story of Rachel all over again, the chosen wife, the beloved, but had no children. And the other wife has many children. So this goes on year after year. It's like a slow death. It's torture for Hannah. It shouldn't surprise us, though, as the story goes on, we see her prayer. And this prayer comes from a broken heart. A prayer from a broken heart. God's ears are tuned to these types of prayers. You know, sometimes I think we make the mistake thinking, you know, well, God doesn't want to hear me when I'm in my... In a, when I'm in the dumps, when I'm in the valley of the shadow, when I'm down, when I'm depressed, when I'm anxious, when I'm scared. I got to get my act together and then I'll come to God. People often think that. They say, well, sure, like I'll grow in my faith one day, but I, I got to get everything right before I come. I say, no, it's God who puts things right in us. You come to him just as you are <laughs> and let God take a hand in your life to walk with you. He's the one that is our power for change. I've heard people say it, that, that baby step of faith that God gives baby Christians to do as an act of faith and public uh, acknowledgement that Jesus is their Lord, that's baptism. That's for baby Christians. But I've known people who've put it off year after year until they're adults, and they keep saying, well, one of these days I'll get everything together, then I'll get baptized. It's a baby step. And in the same way, when your heart is broken, when you're low, when you're hurting, when your life is a mess, 
Don't think you have to clean things up before you come to your Father. Come to Him now. He hears the prayer of a broken heart. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, what does God tell us? He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Humble yourselves. And you know, as I read this passage, it's incredible that this is what Hannah, the gracious woman Hannah, did. Her language is one of humility. You think she could be just angry. I'd be angry in her situation. Having been torn down year after year by this woman, Panina, I would just be out for blood. But not Hannah. She's a humble woman. And the language she uses, she uses a term, it's translated in NIV as your servant, but the literal meaning of it is your handmaiden, your slave. And she uses that phrase for herself six times as she comes to God because she sees herself as God's servant. She does just what Peter says. She humbles herself and God joyously will lift her up. We continue in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. She does something profound here. She asks in a brokenhearted prayer, a desperate prayer, Lord, if you will take away the shame from my life. I'm an outcast socially. Even the language, we heard it in this morning's uh, video blessing. People struggling with fertility. What's the opposite of being fertile? We use, we use terms that speak of land and soil and agriculture. The opposite of being fertile is barren. One is full of life and the other is desolation. And that's how they were made to feel. So she comes to God and she says, I'm going to make a vow. Now this is serious here. And it's not something we see Christians doing in the New Testament for very good reasons. But in the Old Testament, people took oaths and they took vows before God. They swore upon God, upon heaven. And God expected them to keep those vows. She takes a vow that if God gives her a son, she's going to give up that child to God's service. And not only that, but her son will be raised in the most strict religious way as a Nazarite, a Nazarite vow, very similar in the book of Judges to how Samson was raised. They never touch alcohol. They don't touch a dead body. They never cut their hair. They're set apart for God's use. There's even hints in the New Testament that, the, uh, that John the Baptist was raised in such a rigorous way as well. This man 
was going to be God's man. She says, if you give me a child, he's all yours. He will be yours. And now you're starting to see God's answer to the state of the people. The road back to God would be through a set-apart individual. Set apart not only from birth, but from his mother's heart before he's even conceived. This begins the story of Samuel, who God uses to turn around the spiritual fortunes of an entire nation. Now, speaking of the vow, you know, people, that sounds to some of us, that sounds like we call foxhole promises. God, if you get me out of this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to become a priest or I'm going to give up this or that. You know, people bargaining with God when they get a, a diagnosis or something tragic in their lives, they think they can bargain with God. But that's not what this is. This is very serious. And where those promises to God, as soon as the situation turns around and the, the stress is off and the pressure is relieved, we immediately forget what we promise God. We just do. The Bible says God hears it and never forgets. And so the New Testament tells Christians, avoid doing that, lest you fall into sin by making a promise to God and then breaking it right away. They took that very serious. They called them vows. They called them oaths. And they were always connected to covenants. Jesus made a covenant with us, with his body and his blood. That shows you how serious these vows and oaths are. They shouldn't be taken lightly. They should be reserved for weighty matters. Even in our society today, they're reserved for very weighty matters. If you're going to testify in court, where if you lie, you are guilty of perjury and can go to prison yourself, you swear an oath or take a, a, a serious affirmation that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, the nothing but the truth, so help you God. When else do you take an oath? Well, you take a vow before God when you take your spouse's hands and say, I will take you as my wedded wife to have and to hold from this day forward for better for worse for richer for poorer in sickness and in health till death do us part that's a profound promise and though people even christians break that promise half of the time and walk away from marriage god takes it very seriously he hears it deuteronomy warn people from the very beginning about oaths and the seriousness of them, the weightiness of them. Deuteronomy chapter 23, beginning in verse 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it. For the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. But we come to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, don't be making oaths, don't be swearing upon God or heaven or this or that. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. James chapter 5, don't be swearing on things, don't be taking oaths, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's why they make allowance for people not to swear on the Bible in court, not to take a vow, but just a simple affirmation that they'll tell the truth. 
Bible says avoid that except for very extreme circumstances. But this mother made a vow. And the amazing thing in her story is that she keeps it. She was completely serious. It's heartbreaking to me to even read her story, but she did it. Not only does God answer her prayer and take her seriously, but he gave her her heart's desire. That's what we focus on, our heart's desire. Now, many of us would make a vow to get our heart's desire. But when we use that phrase, our minds and hearts go to selfish places. Whatever your heart desires, we think of wealth, riches, holidays, big homes, new cars, whatever your heart's desire. They tend to be very low. We set the bar very low with our heart's desires. Very selfish. Very material. Is it always selfish to want your heart's desire? Well, it depends on your heart. Scripture is very clear that this is a wonderful thing in certain instances, and God wants you to have it. Psalm 37 makes it very clear. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. God says if your heart is in the right place, you're going to want what's best. You're going to want God as king of your life and the blessings that come through that. And He is going to bless you that you can be a blessing in the lives of others. Oh, you may get worn out, used up, but it's going to be good. You're going to give it all away, but it's going to be so good. And you're not going to be hurt or upset or feel left out because your heart, as you grow in your faith and walk with the Lord, your heart's going to resemble Jesus' heart more and more until finally, whatever the Lord wants, that's what I want. Even when it comes to our families and to our children. And we see that lesson taught right here. Continuing in 1 Samuel, pick it up the story again in verse 17. The story, I'm skipping the kind of funny part where she's staring there, she's praying, she's, she's pouring out her heart from the bitterness of her soul, and Eli's watching her, the old priest with the corrupt uh, sons, Eli and Hophnius, and he's watching her, and though he should be a spiritual giant, he doesn't even pick up on what's going on. Her mouth is moving, she's praying silently, so she, he thinks she's drunk, and he scolds her, and she corrects him, no, I'm praying to the Lord. I'm praying. So once she disabuses him of the thought that she is drunk, we continue and pick up the story in verse 17. Hearing that she was praying and, and not drunk, Eli answers, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked him. She asked for a son that she promised to give back to God for all the days of his life. Go in peace. May God grant you what you have asked him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something. You notice now she's able to eat. It's like God, through prayer, has given her peace. 
She's left the answer to the prayer in God's hand, but she has a peace that's amazing now through that prayer and pouring out her heart to God. She went her way, she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. The name Samuel sounds like the Hebrew phrase for God heard me. She asked, and God listened. And that's what Samuel's name refers to. That that little boy was an answer to prayer. And in this amazing story, God saves His people, saves the nation, because she keeps her promise when it comes to the life of her son. Everything was changed by prayer. Jesus said, always pray, never give up. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, Jesus reminds us that God hears what we ask and wants to answer our prayers in ways better than we can imagine. Jesus says in verse 11 of Matthew 7, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I have that little notice board, God's three answers to your prayers. Yes, not yet. And the one we often think is no is actually, I have something better in mind. That's the hard one to take sometime because we pray for what we want. We Sometimes assume we know the answer to our own prayer. Lord, I I am this and I need this. And God says, well, you are here, but you don't really need what you think you need. I'm going to give you something better. And that's what God does. He answers her prayers wonderfully, her heart's desire. And Hannah is blessed. Chapter 2 of 1 Samuel has a beautiful psalm written prophetically by Hannah herself. So she was, she was an incredibly spiritual woman. But the time comes where she has to fulfill that vow. And though she received the greatest gift a mom can have, a child, she gives the gift back. A mother's joy a mother's pain. She takes that little one. She says, I'll keep him at home until he's weaned. I don't know what that actually is in that culture, whether it was a year and a half, two years old. It's pretty young. I'm sure she didn't cut that little guy off too, too early. Kept him as long as she could. But finally she takes him. She takes him to Eli, the old priest. The old priest with the corrupt sons at Shiloh and that tabernacle. The same tabernacle, the tent of meeting that was in the wilderness wanderings, a place of holiness, the presence of God, a scary place for a little kid. But she takes him back. 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 24 says that after he was weaned, the little guy, she took the boy with her, young as he was, 
along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli. She said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Oh, the chapters that follow. Even as a child, Samuel showed that God spoke to him and called him personally and gave him incredible prophetic knowledge. Samuel grew up to be the last and greatest of the judges of Israel. And it was under his time that they, people segued from a time of judges doing whatever they saw fit in their own eyes and moving to have a king. God warned them through Samuel that the downsides of having a king, a human king rather than God as their king, and yet they chose a king. So it was the privilege and responsibility of this son of promise, Samuel, to anoint not only the first king of Israel, Saul, but he was the one that goes to Bethlehem and looks at all the sons of Jesse. And God spoke to him and said, not any of these. And Samuel who says, don't you have any more kids? Well, we have the young one out in the field watching sheep. And it was his hands that took the oil and anoints David, the king after God's own heart. The king that Jesus is born in the line of. The people are set back on a path with their ups and downs and all their struggles, but they're not in danger of dissolving. They remain a cohesive nation. And they come back to God in so many ways because of the mother's prayer. And not only her prayer, but can you imagine what would happen if she had made that prayer, God had answered it, and she had reneged and kept that child at home. Oh, I know moms struggle with that. Look at the world we're in today. How can you send your child out into this world? You train them, you prepare them, you, you pray for them, you do the best you can, but when it comes time to send them out and let them go, that's as hard as Hannah taking that little boy to Shiloh. With that in mind, that Hannah's our example of giving our kids back to God. I came across the writings of a, a Christian psychologist. In fact, she's a neuropsychologist. Her name is, her name is Dr. Michelle Banks, Bankson. Dr. Michelle Bankson has written a number of books, especially focused on believers, especially women who struggle with anxiety. Her ministry is called Hope Prevails. And yet sometimes she admits she struggles to practice what she preaches, especially as a mom when it comes to her own kids. In writing, this is an excerpt from a post she wrote called Our Children Belong to God. Not just little Samuel, all of them. Dr. Bingson writes, Prior to becoming a parent... I could have never understood just how it was possible for one's heart to expand, to love anyone any more than I already did. I thought 
I already had a pretty good grasp on love, experienced others' love, and in turn felt love for others. Yet nothing prepared me for how much more my heart would expand to experience an even greater infilling of love when I gave birth to my two children. Likewise, nothing prepared me for the grief and loss I would feel as I would tenderly nudge my oldest from the nest as we took him off to college. I knew he would do fine. He was a well-adjusted young man who had shown his adaptability in every situation to date. And in my heart of hearts, I knew he was not going alone. He, his father, and I all knew he was going with God on the path God had ordained for him. As much as his father and I loved him, we know that God loves him infinitely more. Perhaps that's why my grief response came as such a surprise. Wasn't this what we'd spent his entire life preparing him for? Wasn't this what we had prayed and trusted God for? I was truly happy for him. I know the the plans God had for him are good and are to prosper him and not to harm him and include a future and a hope. As told us in Jeremiah 29, 11, I'm excited to watch as his biggest cheerleader from the sidelines as those plans and dreams unfold and he faces even bigger horizons. My twinge of sadness is not for him. Selfishly, it's for me. I've been so blessed to be his mother, so blessed by the joy and laughter he brings to the family, so blessed by the intelligent conversation he offers, blessed by his spontaneity and goodwill. My sadness is grief, knowing that those times will be fewer and further between, and yet even more treasured when they do happen. After church, our last pre-college church service together as a family, and during which he resorted to his humorous stunts to keep my tears from falling. The tears were plentiful as I helped finalize the packing endeavors. As I took a break to sit next to my husband, my voice cracked as I tried to speak. When yet again, for several moments, only tears would come. I finally mustered a weak whisper, Is this normal? What do you mean? I thought I was stronger than this, I thought. I was ready. I thought, I've raised him with the mindset that I am giving him wings to fly. What's wrong with me? I leaned in closer as the tears fell harder, having unburdened my concerns in a safe place. I know. I'm feeling the same way. And yes, I think it's normal. Nothing's wrong with you. We not only love him, we love having him as part of the family. I glanced up to see the pain reflected in his eyes as well before he offered, would you like to take a walk or a drive? At that moment, I didn't want to be distracted from my thoughts or my pain. I knew I needed to take it to the one who understood. Just as each of my pregnancies increased my capacity to appreciate God's love for us, his children, so too, has my preparation for sending my son off into the world. While I am not losing my son to death, and I am already planning to see him within a couple months, I can't help but reflect on how much harder it had to have been for God. He willingly let his son leave heaven to minister on earth, all the while knowing that Jesus would have to die the most painful death 
so that we could live. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16 It's hard to fathom, fathom a love so great that God would sacrifice his own son's life for me, knowing the pain and agony it had to have caused him, yet he loved us that much. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Today, I'm counting my blessings and I'm thanking God for loaning me my son. My children belong to God. I just get the joy of being their mother and raising them. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the amazing story of Hannah. Lord, a woman who was so disappointed in life, not only disappointed and feel, Father, that there was something wrong with her, but Lord, day in and day out, year after year, her lot in life was rubbed in her face by a rival woman in her very household. And yet, Lord, at this low point in the life of the nation of Israel, you heard the broken-hearted cry of a mother. You knew her heart. It was a heart of grace. She had a mother's heart that understood that we not only receive our children from you, Lord, but they also belong to you. And Lord, she gave her child back. And though, Father, the Scripture tells us that she was blessed with three more sons and two daughters, Samuel held a special place in her heart. And Lord, this man that was committed to your service from childhood, Lord, you used him to change the direction of a nation. Father, today I pray for the moms and dads of faith. I pray, Lord, for the children that they are raising, Lord, that they would raise up children that would have a positive impact for the church of Jesus Christ, for the nations we live in, to turn this wayward people back to God. Lord, we're living in a time like the book of Judges, a time where things are going from bad to worse as people do what's right in their own selfish eyes. Lord, may we trust you with our lives and with our children. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.